You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning. That was good. That was good. All right. Welcome to Kingsway. We're glad you're here with us today. And yes, we're starting a new series today called Asking for a Friend. If only we were taking some of the questions in the video that came up before the message, right? Because the answer everybody knows is Donatello. Leonardo, Michelangelo. Anyway, we're really glad you're here with us today. And uh, each week we're taking a different question. Today we're kicking off with the question, what happens when I die? Great, thank you for this one. This is a good one, this is a hard one. This is one that all of us have to wrestle with, but I don't have time to play around too much, but I do have this funny story. So uh, I like memes, I don't know about the rest of you, but I got this picture the other day, I saw it, and it said something like, the next time your wife is angry and kind of having a moment with the kids, why don't you grab a towel and put it over her shoulders and say, look, not only you're angry, now you're super angry. I thought that was hilarious. So I sent it to my mom and my wife and my sister, and I thought, (laughs) and then they told me it's a good thing that I'm studying for a sermon on what happens after you die. So here we are today. For time's sake, I'm going to jump right in. This is a real question. There's been all these books, movies, and things going on about something called near-death experiences. I did some reading this week and last week on near-death experiences. I'm certainly no expert. I'm not exactly what will sure what will happen the moment after you die. If you Google what happens after you die and you go to YouTube, there's actually people who've made videos and they will describe to you in detail, gross detail, detail you do not want to know. Medically, what happens to you after you die? I, don't, I did not want to watch those videos. I do not encourage it. But I found it fascinating that one of the videos had 25 million views. 25 million views. That is actually a lot for YouTube. While I realize that might not be as much as like Justin Bieber or, or maybe Dude Perfect gets on YouTube. At the same time, 25 million views tells me people are out there asking the question. They want to know. What's going to happen after I die? And so what we're going to do today is cover it as best as I can from a scriptural standpoint. We'll start at the beginning. We'll work our way to the end. We'll tell you what happens in between, and then I'll leave you with some hope. So along the way, I only ask that you don't give up on me. You don't quit on me, that you just keep engaging all the way to the end. You ready? So we have to start here with what in the world, how do we even get to the point where death is a thing in the first place? So let's start there for a minute. Let's take a look at us as human beings. In the very beginning, God made Adam and God made Eve. And here's the description of that. In Genesis chapter two, verse seven, it says this. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So we see this thing when God made everything. He finished the stars and he finished the plants and he finished the trees and he finished all the animals. He finished everything else. The last thing he made was first Adam. And he takes Adam and he literally forms him out of the dust of the ground. And then he animates him and he fills him with life and breath. What exactly does that mean? If God had not filled him with life and breath, would he just be this walking bag of bones with skin and stuff on it? Would he be alive? Would it be something else? And I don't know exactly. I don't know. But this does lay the foundation that we see consistently through scripture that we are both flesh and spirit. So right now, here in this room, we have a room filled of people full of flesh and spirit, both. And one of them will continue on forever. One of them will not. In fact, 
We actually see that in the very next set of verses. God in the garden, he goes to Adam and eventually to Eve, and he says to them, eat anything you want of the trees in this garden. And he places two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he tells them, stay away from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see that in Genesis chapter two, verse 15, it says, then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Hebrew here, I didn't put it on a slide because you would have just been looking at symbols that you don't know how to read or me, but it's actually the same word repeated twice. It's like saying literally, in dying death. Well, there you go. In Hebrew culture, uh, in order to emphasize something, they would repeat it. And if they really wanted to emphasize it to its perfection, to its ultimate extreme, they'd repeat it three times. For instance, you may see throughout the Old Testament, God is holy, holy, holy. Remember that? You may have learned a hymn, perhaps if you grew up in church. It goes just like that. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Remember that song? Maybe some of you. Well, the point of that, the reason that the angels do that, the reason that the Hebrew text does that, is to let you know there is truly nothing in all of the world, in all of the universe, as holy as God. And in this text, it's repeated twice to let you know, if you eat from this tree, you will certainly die. In dying, death. Now, what we don't know, and brings up lots of questions, I like to poke holes in things. I like to ask questions about things. I'm extremely curious. And I've passed this gift along to my sons, by the way. My sons are like walking Google questions. And so like, last night we went to the IU-OSU game, and all the way down, my son says, we're picking up Chick-fil-A, and he says, Dad, Whenever we do these one-on-one dates, my favorite thing to do is just to ask you questions. So are you okay if I ask you questions? And I was like, yeah, 90 minutes down, 90 minutes back. <laughs> With about 30 minutes to go on the way back, I said, hey, buddy, I know where I'm going. I don't need the map anymore. Do you want to use my phone? <laughs> I have questions. Do you have questions? I want to know some things that God doesn't give me the answers to. But what I know with certainty is until this point in the book of Genesis, really in the next chapter, we don't see death. It's not part of the story. I don't know that the way we define death today in all of its ways is what the Bible means. I would assume in the garden, if you didn't eat an apple and it fell to the ground and died and the seed went in the ground, it could produce a new tree, that that's not the death we're talking about. Because that's just the natural part of a seed going into the ground and coming back up. I think it has a more all-encompassing nature to it. And here's the thing. You and I have only been born into a world completely consumed by death. It is all around us. It is both literal and it is bigger than literal. And what I mean by that is every single person who ever dies, I didn't say that right, every single person who is born is going to die. Except for those who are alive when Jesus returns, but we'll get to that. But we're batting like a thousand here. There are two biblical exceptions of people who didn't die and were taken straight to heaven. But that's it. Everybody else, whatever that works out to, if you take billions and billions and billions and billions of people, two. So 99.9999999999% whatever that works out to, that's it. Two exceptions to the rule. Everybody else dies. But it's bigger than that. Because we learn throughout the scriptures that the earth was supposed to do something for us. It was supposed to provide for us. 
in a way that it can't. Have you ever noticed that we have modern medicines today and they can do so much to help, but they don't fully help? Have you noticed that? Have you ever noticed that you eat and the food when you eat good actually does something to your body, but it doesn't seem to do quite enough? So it's like the earth longs to meet our needs, but is unable to meet it the way it desires to. Paul touches on this in Romans chapter eight. He says, the creation, all of creation is crying out, groaning, longing to be set free from the curse of sin. So sin is not just that we disobeyed God. Sin is the fact that we disobeyed God and it ruined all of his creation. And now all of creation has been subjected to death as a byproduct. And see, if you really take this to its furthest extreme, it means every relationship you have has been impacted by death. And I don't just mean literal death. I mean that, but I mean so much more than that. Tim Keller, I think, does a really good job and the reason for God. He gives us some explanation of this. And let me just walk through what he says. But he says this. Sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself or to get an identity apart from him. So again, sin at its furthest, at its simplest, is disobedience of God. But at its furthest, what it did though is it made me refuse to find myself in God himself. So then I spent all of my time and all of my energy seeking to become something or someone apart from God himself. And what happens, if you would imagine now, not just an Adam and an Eve, but a world, some say roughly eight to 10 billion people in the world today, it's kind of hard to count all of us. Let's just say eight billion people in the world today and every single one of us seeking to do what I want when I want. Imagine your business relationships. You ever notice, for those of you who say work in sales, you never know if they're looking out only for themselves. Am I being ripped off? Right? That goes through your mind. Imagine a world where everybody's trying to get more for themselves. Imagine in a marriage where either a husband and a wife or a wife are simply trying to make themselves happy. They're not worried about satisfying the needs of the other person. Imagine a world where kids don't listen and obey, but do what they want when they want. I know that's hard to imagine, but imagine such a thing. Imagine a world where senators and governors and presidents and dictators and leaders all over the world are passing laws that really aren't in the best interest of, say, God, but are mostly in the best interest of how do I get more power or money or resources? This is the world we live in. And every day I flip on the news and every day I learn of another terrible, terrible evil and tragedy. And it blows my mind. How is that possible? But this is a world being run by death. And certainly because we have run away from God, we will certainly die. We will surely die in dying death. That's why Genesis 3.19 comes along and after Adam and Eve take the fruit of the tree, God says, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. In other words, because you have chosen to run away from God, to disobey, one day you will return to the ground he took you from. So he made Adam out of the ground and you're gonna go back to the ground. And if you go back and watch that YouTube video I said I don't recommend you actually watch, it will describe in graphic detail how long it takes and what the process is like. I really don't recommend it. It was not pleasant to watch. 
But if we are both flesh and spirit, what happens to us when we die? And if you read pop culture, have you ever noticed whenever anybody dies, we make one common statement. They're going to a better place because there's something in our culture that wants to believe whatever is beyond the beyond, everybody's gonna go there. It's called grace, it's called mercy, and everybody's worthy of it. But is that what the Bible tells us? Now, I will tell you, there is plenty for us to discuss in the text that I'm going to show you today. There's plenty for us to debate exactly how it's going to work. And after I get there, I'll let you know what I think of it. What I'm going to do today is tell you, to the best of my ability, my understanding of these texts. And I will tell you, it is definitely the norm for pastors and scholars and people like me who study the Bible and try to teach it. This is what most of us believe is going to happen. But I cannot tell you with certainty until I get there. And the problem is, once I'm there, it's too late to tell you. So I will do the best that I can to show you the text. You may choose to come to your own conclusions, but what I don't believe is you can just make up your own mind about it. What authority do you have? We have to lean into something or someone bigger than ourselves to tell us the wisdom, the knowledge that they have. So let's go to God's word. Ready? Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27 says this. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, there's more to that passage, we get enough from it. People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. I don't know if you've done any reading on near-death experiences. I don't know how I feel about them. By and large, I don't trust them. But one thing I do find fascinating is for those who have it, they often speak of being pulled into like this tunnel kind of thing and into a light. And there's like this judgment moment where their own life is flashing before their eyes. The good things, the bad things, the true motives being exposed as they go towards this light. I find it fascinating, exactly whatever it means, exactly whatever happens after we die. We are now learning that science tells us that sometimes when we think a person is dead, there's still an element of consciousness that is going on in people's bodies and minds. Some who are clinically dead are reporting to hear and see and know things happening in the room, at least for a few moments after they are clinically dead. We don't know. There is so much we don't know. We don't understand. But what the Bible does say consistently from beginning to end is this truth. At some point after we die, we will all face judgment. After that, the saved go to heaven for eternal life and the condemned go to hell for eternal damnation. I know that like falls like an anvil in the room. Perhaps you yourself have never wrestled with that. Perhaps you yourself thought you'd come to church today, just hear this great message about everybody's gonna go to heaven one day. Perhaps you have a family member, a friend, a loved one, a child, a parent whose pastor is close. If I'm understanding correctly, in the first nine months or a year of COVID, two and a half million Americans died. And then in the six months after that, another two and a half million. And I don't even know what the current number is today. And that's just here in America. We are faced with the reality of death. It's around us all the time. And so I don't say this lightly. I may make jokes and things to try to make light of it, but I don't say any of this lightly. I say this is just a stark reality for us. 
But notice the way that I worded this. Good people don't go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Saved people go to heaven and condemned people go to hell. What does it mean to be saved and condemned? Let's come back to that question. Let me show you this one. Daniel chapter 12, verse two. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. One of the things I do love about this passage is not only does it deal with both sides, but it really emphasizes the positive. Those who are righteous, those who seek after God will shine like the stars. But notice there are two groups here. Everybody who sleeps in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Notice it's two different sets of everlasting. Neither one is cut off, neither one is cut short. Either you will live forever and it is a righteous, bright, shining star with God or you'll live forever in contempt. There are many passages. We don't have time to look at all of them today. So many passages that confirm this. But it's this that we want to avoid at all costs. Here's another one. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who could destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, we recorded uh, some podcasts for this series. We did one on heaven and one on hell, and we only went about 25 minutes or so in each podcast, so we still don't get to go super deep on any of them, but we go deeper than I have time to go here. I just want to make the simple point that those who are saved go to heaven those who are condemned, go to hell. And here, Jesus is affirming it. Now, the word used for hell most often throughout the New Testament is the word called Gehenna. And Gehenna is a real place in Jesus' day. It stands for the Valley of Hinnom. And we say Gehenna, that's like a word. And we translate it as hell. And so when we think of hell, we tend to think of a visual thing. But what they would have thought of in Jesus' day is a very different thing. It's a literal valley outside the city and way back in the Old Testament, terrible, evil things happened in that valley. In fact, the Israelites, though they were told never to worship the false gods of the foreign nations, they did. And they sacrificed their children to some of those false gods in that valley. And that valley over time became a different place, a place where evil, immoral things were done. And then by the time Jesus comes along, that valley was used as a trash dump, where literally the trash burned day and night, and it smoldered all the time. And this is the word that Jesus uses. He's pointing to a literal place. He's pointing to a trash dump where the fire burned over and over and over again. Does that mean that hell will be a literal fire? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. One of the most consistent images throughout Revelation and even in the Old Testament and the New Testament is whatever this place is, it's like this burning. Burning can mean multiple things though. The same fire that can burn and consume can also purify. And I don't know. I only know that when Jesus speaks of it, he talks about there being weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we read one of those texts to my kids the other day, and my Google kid goes, well, what does that mean? What does gnashing of the teeth mean? And I said, I don't even want to try to show you because I'd like to have my teeth when I walk out of here. But if you've ever had such intense 
pain and suffering in your life before, and you were just biting down. You ever see one of those movies back in the day where they didn't have any medicines, and like somebody needs a surgery, or somebody's giving birth, and they put like a stick in their mouth, and they give them like a, you know, a swig of whiskey or something, it's like, all right, here we go. And they are like, Aah! That's the kind of image that we get of this place and those who go there. There's this gnashing of the teeth, this anger, this burning rage, this hurt, this pain, this contempt, this shame, this frustration. This question can almost be verbalized, why? Why didn't I? Why didn't I take it serious? Why didn't I think about this then? Why didn't I deal with it when I had time? And Jesus says, don't even be afraid of the people of this world. People who could point a gun at you or a knife at you, people who could threaten you and kill you, don't even worry about them. The very worst they can do to you is kill your body. Instead, fear the one who after you've been separated from your body can destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, in the very least, what we see is we are made up of both flesh and spirit. But it brings up a phenomenal question, doesn't it? What happens to our bodies while we wait for the return of Jesus? If all of this final stuff happens when Jesus returns, what happens between now and then? The consistent phrase throughout the Bible is fallen asleep. And what the Bible means when it says fallen asleep is those who have died before Jesus' return, they are asleep somewhere or something. And part of the reason we're told that they have fallen asleep is because the Bible doesn't want you to get the image that when you die, that's the end. There's more to the story. But until Jesus returns and the saved are redeemed and sent to heaven and the condemned are then judged and sent to hell, until then, what happens then? Well, I think Thessalonians does a really good job of kind of talking about this a little bit. So let's take a look. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse 13 says this, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. <laughs> I like that. Yes, thank you. Encourage one another with these words. This is great news. One day Jesus is going to return. There's going to be a loud trumpet sound. And the dead in Christ will be raised to life. First, those who are dead will go. And then the rest of us will join them. And exactly what happens from there, scholars love to debate. And we're not going there. But what happened to our loved ones who have already passed. Where are they? If the final judgment has not yet come because Jesus has not yet returned, what has happened? And this is what theologians call the intermediate state. Intermediate state, this is from Jack Cottrell, one of my Bible college profs. He says this, a number of texts affirm two basic points. First, that individuals continue to exist in a state of personal consciousness after death. And second, that they exist 
in this state as souls without bodies. Aren't you glad Halloween's coming here in <laughs> a few days? Perfect timing. So again, what happens is we are flesh and spirit. When I know somebody really, really well, and I'm asked to do their funeral, I like to make a little joke, but I usually only make this at the funerals where I really know somebody. And I say something like, the shell has been left behind, but the nut has gone home. <laughs> Thank you for finding that somewhat funny. <laughs> Depending on the person, some funerals do and some do not. That said, the whole idea here is there is something living inside you right now. And you can't taste it, you can't touch it, you can't feel it, but it's very, very real. And this flesh is going to die for everybody. It's gonna age out, it's gonna get sick, it's gonna get in a car accident, something tragic is gonna happen somewhere. You just have a matter of days. If you are blessed or cursed, I don't know, you might make it to 120. Probably not. Even with modern medicine, you're gonna be at best, you're gonna make it between 80 and 100. And if you're already past that, man, I, praise God. Praise God. But the reality for all of us is this body is going to pass away and your spirit will go into what's called the intermediate state. We see pictures of this throughout the Bible. Again, I'm covering a lot of ground quickly, so I'm gonna have to tell some stories that if you're not familiar with them, you might have to go look them up later. So in 1 Samuel 28, we see Saul, King Saul, he has turned away from the Lord. His heart is hardened and he's away from the Lord. And he is going now to do something that God has commanded Israel never do. Let me be very clear here, very clear with Halloween coming, it's perfect timing. God makes very clear, do not try to talk to the dead. Once they are dead, they are separated from the living. Do not go there. This is evil, evil. But Saul, King Saul, his heart has been hardened already. God has already anointed David, but is letting Saul live out his days. And Saul goes to the witch of Endor and tries to speak to the dead. He tries to call back the prophet Samuel to get wisdom from Samuel. And what's crazy is when Samuel shows up, the witch of Endor knows something has happened in this moment that she's not used to, and she is legit afraid. Whatever fake magic, whatever normal incantation she goes about, Samuel is actually sent back and actually addresses Saul and gives him a very strong rebuke and warning about God going to take his life. But what we see is even though Samuel's body is gone, though he is dead, his spirit is still alive and God allowed him in this moment to go back and give a message. That is not normal and is strongly condemned throughout scripture. So do not hear me telling that story to say, you should go try this later with Ouija boards or something else. Stay away. There is an evil and a presence there that we are not to play around with. But in another story, in Matthew chapter 17, there's something called the transfiguration. And Jesus goes up on a mountain and it says he is transformed. It's like his flesh, the veil of his flesh is stripped away and all of a sudden he's there in his heavenly presence and he shined bright like lightning and all of a sudden appeared with him Moses and Elijah. And they start having a conversation. And Peter walks up and he's like, this is great. Should we build a tabernacle for Moses and Elijah? And I can almost picture Jesus going, Peter, just sit down and enjoy the moment. I've also wondered like, how do we know it's Moses and Elijah? Did, Jesus, did Elijah, did Jesus look at him and say, Moses, and give him a hug? Or did he have like a name tag on? Like, was he carrying the 10 commandments? Like, how did Peter know? 
I don't know. But what I do know is Moses has been dead for 1,500 years or so, more. Elijah, thousands of years. I mean, like, these guys have been dead for a long time. But their spirit is still around somewhere. And so Jesus brings them to that moment to testify to who he is. But Jesus is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Are you with me? Because while they may appear dead to us, they are not. The condemned await the final judgment in a place the Bible calls Hades. Hades. I have just enough time to whet your appetite and make you curious. Nevertheless, let's look at one passage. This is a story Jesus tells. It's a parable. In Luke chapter 16, there's a story that's told, <coughs> excuse me, about a guy named Lazarus and a rich man. Lazarus is poor. He suffered a lot in this life. And the rich man, while here in this life, he was not kind or merciful or generous in any way to Lazarus. And they both die. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So Lazarus is the poor man. Abraham is a reference to the place where the dead who are saved go in the intermediate state called Abraham's bosom, but we'll get to that. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. Well, Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us, and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And what we take away from this story is the final judgment has not come yet. But those who are saved go to what here is called Abraham's bosom. I'll get to that in a moment. And those who are condemned go to Hades, this intermediate state. It's fixed. You can't cross from one to the other. No amount of offerings or sacrifices or services, regardless of what any other church tells you, is going to move you from one state to the other. A chasm, a gap of some sort has been fixed. So wherever you are, it's done. Are you with me? This is critical because what you do in this life makes that decision. There's nothing you could do after this life to change it. There are plenty of books and lies out there from people who want to trick you. And they want to say things like, because God is love and he is, that therefore after this life, everyone will be saved and everyone will have an opportunity to receive Jesus after this life. But that is not the way Jesus tells the story. Jesus tells the story in such a way that it is fixed. There is a chasm. It is not going to change. But the saved, let's talk about them. The saved await the final judgment in a place called paradise 
or in this story, it was called Abraham's bosom. I wanna be careful not to give too many names to it because I don't want you getting hung up on the name itself. Whatever exactly God calls it, he can call it whatever he wants. The idea is the place. It is a place of peace. It is a place in the presence of God. You will be conscious and awake and aware. You will have your senses and feelings about you, but you will be waiting for your final body. We are told that at the resurrection, the final judgment, we will all get a new body. So these are disembodied spirits of those who have passed already and are waiting for the final white throne judgment of Jesus to come so that we can finally receive what is called the good news. The good news. And the good news, if you remember throughout the gospels, the good news is that God loved us so much that even though we destroyed his good creation with sin and rebellion and the whole world has been wrecked, that wasn't the end of the story. And one day, he will not only give us new bodies and us eternal life, but he will make all things new. Sin will be removed finally and forever, and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And that's a good day. Yeah, you can clap. While hanging on the cross, Jesus is crucified between two thieves. And the one thief is hurling insults at Jesus. And the other one, in Luke chapter 23, verse 42, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him and said, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. He didn't use the word for heaven. He used a different word, and we believe he did it on purpose. You won't be at the final judgment yet. You will be, but we're not there yet. I've got to raise from the dead first. Today, you will be with me in the place where the saved go, waiting for me to return again. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. I love this. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought the most of the next world. The more you ponder the world that is to come, the more it will change you today. I promise you this. Because it will make you start to think about, do I really want to invest my dollars in these things? Do I really want to give my body to these things? If I know that even the silent thoughts of my heart, even the words that nobody else knew I spoke, the text messages no one else knew I sent, the things that I've seen or done that nobody else knows about. If God is gonna judge all of those things, then I'm going to take serious all of those things. If I know that God's gonna hold me accountable and bless me for the good things that I've done, then everything I do matters. This is why St. Augustine, famous father of the faith, said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And that is so true. But I realize this message is content heavy. It brings up a million different questions. I literally just found out today, and I read about a third of the book this morning, a guy named Lee Strobel just wrote a book on the case for heaven. And I actually thought he did a really good job in the third that I got to read this morning. I didn't know it till last night in bed that he wrote it. So I just started plowing through it to see what he did with certain things. And I was impressed. I thought he did well. Maybe you would do well to go pick it up and read it yourself. Maybe you've got some questions and perhaps you'll find some of those answers. 
But today I want to invite you into something more specific. I want to invite you into specifically a relationship with Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter six, Paul says this, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefits did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, whether you're at home watching this or listening somewhere down the road or perhaps today, or whether you are here right here in this room, Jesus stands available to give you an answer to the question, what happens when I die? And your answer, like my answer and many other answers in this room, can be, I will be with God forever. In fact, John chapter 17, Jesus says this, now this is eternal life, that they know you, God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what eternal life is. And that doesn't have to wait until your last breath to be found. It can be found right here, right now. What if God sent Jesus to redeem and restore all things your worst days, your most shameful days, your most painful days. What if that's why Jesus came and all you need is a decision? Perhaps you're ready to make that decision. I wanna do something right now that is not something we do normally at Kingsway, but we do wanna do it right now. If you have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you want the confidence and the hope of heaven, I just wanna encourage you to raise your hand right now. Raise your hand. Raise it high enough for us to see. Thank you. If you've never made this decision before, we've got some people in this room, they're gonna come and bring you a card and get some information from you. They're gonna to talk to you about what this means and we're gonna follow up with you and so talk to you about what's next. I wanna lead us in a prayer this morning. Father in heaven, right now I pray for these men and women all over the room who've raised their hands for whatever the reason being, whatever is going through their heart and mind, whatever's going through their life right now, God, I pray that you would meet them in this place. God, I pray that you would help them to find you, to know with confidence that through Jesus Christ, we are saved. God, I pray for those who are in this room who maybe have not yet raised their hand, but know they hear your voice calling them. God, I pray that you would stir in them, tear down the walls, whatever's preventing them from taking that step, from making that decision. And God, I pray right now that you would go with them. May they follow up and follow through so that on the last day, I can be there and hug them and hold them and say, welcome home. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. All God's people said, amen.